Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to Netbooks Network Podcast. I am Yakir Englander, and today I'm hosting Professor Saul Weiner to a dialogue about his recent book on Becoming a Healer, The Journey from Patient Care to Caring About Your Patients, published by John Hopkins University Press in 2020. In my younger years, I deeply wanted to become a medical doctor to have the gift to help people in their pain. However, as I started visiting medical departments at the university, I felt not at home. I had no clear words to explain it, but I got the feeling that my desire to touch pain with vulnerability is not really welcomed. I learned that medical students share some similar aspects of personality. They have great ability to learn many details in short time. However, and as Professor Weiner shares in his book in detail, Medical students trained not to meet their patients as full human beings, people who have challenges outside of their bodies that affect their medical situation. As a result, many times doctors are failing to heal their patients or even listening to their real pain. Saul Weiner is a professor of medicine, pediatrics, and medical education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Welcome, Saul. And hello, Saul. Hello. Hey, good to have you here with us. So let's let's start thinking about um, your book. So in in your book, you ask important questions about the way how we study um, medicine in United States. And naturally, as an Israeli, um, I'm thinking I compare it to to the way how my friends study medicine in Israel. And two things come to my mind. Um, the first thing is that in Israel, people join um, medical schools after they served in the, at the IDF, the Israeli um, army, and it make them to join medical school after they had some time in the military to deal with ethical and emotional questions about life also to meet people from different cultures. Um, and in a way, it make them to join medical school with some maturity about life. And I wonder if you can elaborate for us a little bit more about medical school here in America. Uh, because in the book, you emphasize that in medical school, we ask and we need to learn a lot about um, how to solve the biological and chem- chemical challenges that our bodies bring to our life. However, there is less studies about ethics and about questions of how to deal with different communities. So maybe as we want to come into the book, if you can please give us a more 
about the atmosphere of medical studies and the challenges that you see in in um, the medical school system sure well thank you I think that's a, a good way to start the 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 term ethics uh, I think is a little more specific than the one I might use uh, to describe what I think is missing in medical school in the United States I do actually do take a class in ethics in medical school it's quite didactic meaning it's taught in a very formal structured way like any curriculum would be uh, autonomy justice etc you learn these terms uh, and uh, and and that's just one more uh, set of facts to memorize uh, I think what 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 is not well developed uh, and what is really a focus of the book on becoming a healer is probably what I describe in depth in chapter five which is uh, the capacity to engage with other people and to do so with boundary clarity and these are very complex ideas uh, they're particularly difficult to explain to people who have not experienced them uh, and so I spend a lot of time in the book trying to explain what it means to engage. And I make it clear that the capacity to engage with another person is not specific to a doctor-patient interaction. It's, 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 it's characteristic of any healing human interaction. And I think that when people ask me, well, what do you mean exactly? What do you mean by engagement and boundary clarity? I ask them to reflect on encounters they've had with people, sometimes strangers, uh, that have left them feeling better. Uh, you know, when you when you have an encounter with somebody uh, and uh, you walk away just somehow feeling just better, better about yourself, uh, calmer, um, uh, more grounded, uh, you've probably had an engaged interaction and one that's characterized by boundary clarity. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Engagement uh, occurs when two people are relating to each other uh, with their full attention, uh, when there is no uh, pretension. Uh, when there is when one individual is not at a higher level or, or perceiving themselves at a higher level than the other, they're on a level playing field. It's just a sense of shared humanity. Uh, and uh, you know, sometimes I feel like people are more willing to engage when they don't know each other. You often have those encounters when you're sitting next to somebody on the train or on the airplane, uh, and you get into a conversation, and it can be quite intimate uh, with the knowledge that you'll never see each other again. Uh, and 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 I've I've always thought of that as sort of interesting and a little bit poignant because it almost suggests that people are afraid to engage uh, with those who they will see again, um, which raises questions about why is that? Why is it that we will open ourselves up to intimacy uh, with strangers uh, when we're a, a little afraid to do that with people who we're going to uh, wake up with the next day, like our spouse or a friend or somebody at work? And I think that's because we, we lack boundary clarity. And boundary clarity is the capacity uh, to understand what's me versus what's you. Uh, it's really a fancy way of saying respect. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, there's this uh, dynamic, almost a yin and yang between engagement and boundary clarity, but both are essential uh, to healing interactions. Uh, and I think that when you sort of have that um, meeting with a stranger on the train or the plane, uh, both tend to be in play. You're able to engage with each other and there's a clear respect for boundaries. And, that, uh, and that's uh, um, uh, a very safe uh, setting uh, with with uh, uh, when two people are being intimate. So I think that um, this is a, a, a key component of being a healer, whether you're a doctor or um, or anyone. Uh, and I think we find people who are healers in society uh, in every corner uh, of the world uh, and in every uh, in virtually in every in every profession or or, or job. Um, and we 
often find that people who are in professions where you're supposed to be healer are, are not healers. Uh, they completely lack the capacity to engage um, or they or they can engage, but they don't have boundary clarity. You know, I talk in the book about the fact that uh, if, if, a, if a, a couple uh, who may have been married for five years or 20 years are screaming at each other um, in fury, they're definitely engaged. Um, but uh, there's a complete breakdown of boundary clarity. Uh, and so, um, uh, and so, so just to engage is not, is not, is not the whole picture here, but, and I think, uh, physicians when they're with patients tend to do just the opposite. Uh, they, um, uh, they hold the patient at arm's length. Uh, they adopt a kind of professional persona, uh, which is, um, one that you, you couldn't really criticize because they're very professional. Hello, Mrs. Jones. How are you today? How's your blood pressure? When did you have your last colonoscopy? Do you need a mammogram, et cetera, et cetera? And they're typing away on the computer screen, uh, writing their note and so forth. And it's a very quote unquote professional interaction. Um, and there's um, clearly uh, no violation of boundaries there, but there's also no engagement. Um, and uh, meaning that they're holding the person at a kind of arm's length. This isn't really a sense of shared humanity. Uh, you don't really know who that person is, who's the doctor who you're talking with. Uh, you don't, they're, they're hidden, they're hidden from you. Uh, and, and I think that when you're suffering, uh, when you're frightened, uh, what you need fundamentally is a sense of human connection with whomever you're with, because that's the only kind of connection that ultimately is going to be a healing connection. You need to know who is that person who is my doctor today? Um, and, uh, and, and so I think that the capacity to, to, to nurture physicians through medical training who are comfortable engaging and who have boundary clarity is fundamentally missing uh, and is fundamentally needed um, in, in medical practice. Thank you. So actually, I want to go to the question that I thought is going to summarize our, our interview, our dialogue. And I think, I, but it's, it's exactly to ask it now. So in a way, we have two poles. We have on the one, on the one pole, we have the direction to go that medicine needs to solve a biological problem. On in the other pole, the other side, um, we have people who try to see human beings and to give them the um, um, the best way of living. And if psychology, psychologists in a way are on that side that they need to look on the big picture, in a way we expect, and maybe this is a challenge, that medical doctors are going to solve the problem as it is. And I think that the challenge that you bring us in the book is that even if it's true that we want medical that we want doctors to solve the biological problem they can't do it in the best way unless they really know a little bit more or or not even a little bit but to understand more the atmosphere where the person is living and how they live and with whom they interact and the ability to buy the um, the pills that you give them to take right so can you elaborate and help us to understand more about that yes you know i uh, i don't see any any tension between these two uh poles i see them as completely melded and again if i if you, if you feel like i'm missing something here please challenge me but uh the way i look at it is uh when a doctor and a patient meet they're just two people getting together to try to solve some problems uh, very practical problems and they're and they're whatever the problems are that the patient is facing if the patient has a medical condition and as you kind of alluded to a minute ago needs a medication they can't afford uh, that's the pro that's part of the problem and the the doctor's job is to uh, 
help work with the patient to see how are we going to solve that problem? Uh, are we going to find uh, another medicine that's a little cheaper? Are we going to see if we can find a pharmaceutical company that maybe will give the medicine out for free? Um, what are we going to do? And, uh, and, and how are we going to do it when we have, say, 20 minutes together? Um, how are we going to prioritize that time? Do we need to meet again? Do we need to have a phone call afterwards? Um, and so I, I actually think that there's nothing particularly um, highfalutin or glamorous or philosophical about this. Um, in fact, I think it's just the opposite. I think that it's just two people trying to solve some problems. I think the difference between uh, a physician-patient encounter and um, any other encounter is that the physician walks in with a little toolkit, which is their medical training. Uh, they have some skills uh, that are often important during that visit. Um, often they need them. Sometimes they don't even need them. Sometimes a visit doesn't really require um, dipping into that toolkit. And I, and I talk about that in my book. When I walk into uh, an exam room to meet with a patient, um, I'm aware that I'm carrying this toolkit. And I think of it that way because I don't think of myself as just the toolkit. I'm Saul. I'm Saul who is just there to try to help this person in the 15 minutes we have or 20 minutes we have or 45 minutes we have in the best way I can. Um, and I know that they've come to me because I have medical training. So I understand that they have some medical problems, but, uh, but I understand that there could be a lot of other stuff going on as well related to those medical problems. And what's interesting is it took me some years to be, to, to get there because when I, when I, um, went to medical school, I was, uh, enamored of having the MD and having the title of doctor and of, of identifying my of thinking myself as a physician that was a part of my identity and it was a very important part of my identity um, and increasingly over the years after I finished medical school and training um, it, it 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 went away um, and I I now I think of myself as Saul even when I'm with a patient and I'm aware that I I'm um, that I have medical training and that that's why they came to me um, but after 30 years of practice. Um, it's really not my identity. My identity is that I'm Saul and I'm there to help people solve problems. So I wonder if you can, can you take one of the many examples that you bring in the book? And, and by the way, one of the, I think the um, incredible things in the book is that you bring a lot of storytelling. It's like you make the people not to be only clients but or, or patients, but you make them to be stories about specific people. So I wonder if you can bring an example of a story where if we will look at that as also only as a biological problem, we will not solve the problem. But however, when we look on the story, when we look on the person who is coming as a full human being and they look at you, because I think one of the questions that you bring in the book is not only how, how doctors look at the clients or patients, but also which kind of welcoming, which kind of hospitality and which kind of feeling we bring them in order to make sure that they will feel comfortable to open to you. So I wonder if you can give us an example that can um, we can understand it better. Yeah, I think one of the ones that's most poignant in the book is the relationship I had with the patient I call Arthur. And, um, our, and again, it's, it's particularly germane perhaps in the current environment that we're in because Arthur was a black man a young black man from a, uh, a poor community on the south side of Chicago. And uh, he had sickle cell anemia, which is a real scourge of a disease that affects certain populations, uh, particularly African-Americans. Uh, and uh, it turned out that it was evolutionarily advantageous um, in Africa over many centuries because it protected people from malaria. So it, it tended to focus in certain, gen in certain populations. 
um, including African Americans, uh, because of their obviously their their links to Africa. And so we see this uh, uh, terrible disease uh, um, among certain groups, particularly African American men and African Americans. And when I was uh, um, uh, working at a hospital as a resident, I cared for a number of patients who had sickle cell disease, and I described this this one young man named who I call Arthur, uh, and Arthur. Uh, had this very um, unfortunate relationship with a whole slew of, of physicians over a period of years, uh, which had been highly contentious uh, and had become uh, very um, hostile. And it was a dynamic where he was um, essentially uh, treated badly by them. They didn't, they didn't respect him. Um, I think there was probably a certain amount of racism at the time. Uh, and um, and he, was, uh, um, he was extremely bright. Uh, and um, and he learned in many ways to manipulate them. Uh, I think in some ways he was playing with them and he would provoke them. Um, but ultimately it was because um, he was, he was uh, I think he felt disrespected. And it was always over this fight over narcotics. He, wa- he would say he wanted narcotics uh, to treat his pain. And, and they would feel like they were being manipulated. Uh, and then they would be, it would spiral downhill. And he had these ongoing hostile um, cycles with many physicians. And all of this time, he was slowly becoming sicker and sicker because no one was really treating his, uh, his, his underlying condition, which was that he was developing um, a complication called hemochromatosis, where iron builds up from multiple transfusions and starts to damage the liver and the heart. And there's actually a treatment for it. It's a chelation therapy called, uh, that, that, that is critical to start early. It's an infusion therapy that will chelate out the iron and, and can really save your life. And, um, and because he was in such a sort of hostile dynamic with so many physicians, he was called non-compliant, which is just kind of a, a buzzword for a patient who basically just doesn't play ball, who's considered non-cooperative. Um, and so this, uh, this dynamic was ultimately very destructive to, to him. Uh, and, um, and, and, and he was considered basically just a difficult patient. Uh, and when I, when I met him, um, I was sort of aware of these problems, and uh, I just kind of went into this uh, determined to try to get to know Arthur. Uh, and uh, it didn't go uh, well initially. It was challenging. Uh, he didn't show up to his appointments with me. I cared for him as an inpatient initially, but when he didn't show up for his appointments, I would call him um, and, uh, and, and, and complain that he hadn't come in. And I think he was surprised by that because usually physicians were just so grateful he didn't show up for an appointment because they were always such hostile interactions. And, uh, and I would call him. I would want to know why he hadn't come. Uh, and, uh, and I did it repeatedly. Um, and, uh, and so we kind of got into this dynamic where I just continued to just take him at face value. Um, and, um, uh, and eventually we became very close. Uh, and, uh, and he started to, um, he, he would certainly come in. I learned a lot about his life. Um, I realized he was just so damn smart. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately it was too late at that point. Um, we got him on chelation therapy, but the damage was done. The damage to his liver was done. The damage to his heart was done. And he, be- it became clear that he was going to die. Uh, and, uh, and he had to come to terms with that. It was very, it was difficult. Um, and, and we, we talked about it and I have a, a kind of a, a good section of a chapter. We talk about that relationship. Um, and, and, and he, and he died. Uh, and, uh, at that point I was, um, I have this very unusual experience where I'm in, uh, invited to the funeral and I'm put in this, um, put next to his mother uh, at the front. Uh, and I, I, I felt, uh, I was overwhelmed by that, by, by being given that kind of honor, um, by the family. And, um, 
And yet uh, the, the tragedy of this is that he was fundamentally killed by the incompetence of his physicians. Um, his physicians, uh, it was really, they, they, had, they lacked the capacity to engage with boundary clarity. They were not able to recognize that his acting out was a manifestation of the environment in which uh, they were, the, the environment that they were creating for him. Uh, when when he was sick, um, and and so uh, now th- this was at a top tier hospital, one of the top hospitals in the country. Um, they had absolutely the best expertise, the best subspecialists. They had absolutely the capacity to save him. Uh, they were on the cutting edge of um, of the biomedical aspects of care, but uh, but this young man died because um, uh, because they were not capable of of of, uh, of engaging with him, of maintaining boundary clarity, of being respectful. Uh, and, uh, and so I think that's a, that was a really seminal relationship for me that I describe in the book because it was early in my career and it just shows how profoundly important, uh, this whole area really is. Thank you. So when I read your book, I think that the questions that coming to me again and again, and maybe, um, this is something that walk all over, um, all over the book for the reader is a question of boundaries. And one of the questions that um, many times people probably ask you is about time management. Um, if we are going to give more time to the patient, to the clients, w- what we will do, I mean, how we can manage because we need, because doctors need to see so many people. However, you bring, you bring a different perspective. Can you, can you help us to understand it better? Sure. Um, As you may know, I am also a researcher of the doctor-patient relationship, and I wrote an earlier book uh, that was focused on the research that my team had done over many, many years, uh, and that book is called Listening for What Matters. And one of the studies that we did uh, involved uh, training a team of actors uh, uh, to portray being patients. We call them unannounced standardized patients, and we sent them on hundreds of visits to many, many physician practices, and the doctors all agreed to not know when they were seeing a fake patient. And we would tell them after they'd written their note. And these actors were undercover. They, they, they carried concealed audio recorders. And they were trained to say exactly the same thing at each visit. Uh, and they would um, uh, present as if they were a new patient. And then they would drop a clue that they were struggling with some challenging um, psychosocial issue, like they couldn't afford a medication that they needed. And we created these cases so that if the physician picked up on those clues and asked about them, the actor would reveal a backstory that would completely change the way in which they would need uh, to receive care. Uh, And the care that they would receive would be highly effective. So for instance, they might be on a really expensive brand name drug for a condition and they would drop a clue that they couldn't afford it. They would say, you know, doc, it's been really tough since I've lost my job. And we discovered that more than half the time, the doctors would completely ignore that comment or say something flippant like, uh, yeah, it's a tough economy. Do you have any allergies? And they would just keep going. And that patient would walk out with a, a more expensive drug than the one that they already couldn't afford and a bunch of uh, referrals to fancy specialists that they couldn't afford. And uh, on the other hand, the doctors who would say, well, what do you mean you can't, uh, you can't afford? Tell me about that. Or you, what do you mean it's been tough since you've lost your job? And they would find out that what was really going on and they would switch that patient to a cheaper generic and the patient would walk out and with just the right care. Now, one of the most extraordinary findings of that study was that on average, the length of those two audio recordings was the same. And so what we learned is that when physicians uh, pick up on clues, the patients are struggling with life issues and take the time to engage, uh, that on average, it does not lengthen the visit. 
uh, that, uh, and that they because they save time on the back end, uh, not talking about all kinds of biomedical stuff that's actually pointless, irrelevant, and not going to be helpful because it's not really getting at the heart of what's causing the patient to struggle. And so one of the things we've shown empirically um, on a very large scale is that while physicians often claim or fear that if I open up Pandora's box and start to dig into these psychosocial issues, I'm going to run out of time, what we've actually discovered is that's not actually empirically true. Uh, You will uncover problems and challenges, and that may take a little bit of time, but you also won't waste time talking to them about ordering all kinds of tests and referrals that are going to be unhelpful anyway. Thank you. Another another subject that you 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 touch um, in different places in the in the book is how we should um, behave with cultures who are different than the culture that the doctors um, are part of, um, and and you show it in, with different examples. And one of the one of the questions that I'm thinking as um, I'm listening to you is that actually medicine starts not when the problem come, but already with communication with different cultures, right? We can prevent a lot of, a lot of challenges, a lot of um, medical problems by having dialogue with the community. And, and I wonder, it's not part of the book, but I wonder if you can help, help the, the listeners and, and myself to understand more. One of the challenges that we have now with the coronavirus um, in the Jewish community is dealing with the ultra-Orthodox um, one, which is a community that, um, by definition, they want to keep their tradition by putting some boundaries, and again, we come to boundaries, um, with Western society, with the Western culture. And they they were hit by the coronavirus very strongly because they didn't know how to how to react to a problem that they are not sure what does it mean exactly. And also because for them, and this is a place where I would love if you can help us to understand, for them to be together, to meet together as a community three times a day when they go to the synagogue or the young adults when they go to study in their institute, the yeshiva, is part of their of their values. And it took a lot of time until, unfortunately, it was too late when they understand that they needed to change the way how they interact and show love and feel safe. And safety is a big issue among themselves, right? And I wonder if you can help us. I don't know if you want to focus on on these specific examples that I just raised, but if you can help us to understand more about the roles that you think um, doctors can play when we speak about gap of culture and um, between in, in in you know between different communities great question so you know there's a whole field called social determinants of health uh, that's a term that's used a lot in these days and it it refers to the idea that all of us are deeply affected by the the milieu in which we are raised and in which we live and i think that's what you're alluding to and there's been a lot of questions about what can you know what can doctors do to address social determinants of health I think we have to um, have somewhat modest goals here. Uh, I think the majority of doctors spend the majority of their professional time in an office with one patient at a time. And so while they do live in a community, I think, and they can play a role uh, outside of their medical practice, perhaps in a positive way, influencing that community, 
in the day-to-day business of being a physician, you really are not in that community. You're in an office and people are coming to you one person at a time and you're having uh, interactions with those people. And let's suppose you may be caring for people from a particular community, like a like an Orthodox community, where there is a, an enormous emphasis on people being together and, and celebrating together or being at funerals together. And, and that creates, as you know, a tremendous risk for infection in, in the era of the coronavirus. And so the question, of course, is what can a physician do? And um, I, th- I think it's somewhat limited. I have a few thoughts. Um, first of all, in any interaction with an individual patient from that community, uh, the physicians can certainly engage them and find out kind of what are they doing. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, one of the things that they always teach you in psychology is that you have to meet people where they're at. You can't lecture to people and tell them, you know, you got to stop doing that. It just doesn't work. You have to sort of um, we call that um, re- readiness for change. So you sort of say, well, where are you in this? Um, and what are your preferences? And are you aware of some of the risks and benefits of what you're doing? Um, and how comfortable are you with that? Um, do you feel uneasy? Um, because, you know, if the person just says, uh, I'm, I know I'm, my community is everything to me. I, um, uh, I, 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 I don't think I'm going to get coronavirus. You can't convince me I'm going to get coronavirus. Um, I want to spend, uh, I'm going to do whatever my rabbi says. Uh, then, there's not much you can do about that. I think you have to acknowledge that. Uh, and that person is uh, uh, deeply embedded in that community and, and uh, you know, hopefully they won't get sick. I mean, what can you do? Now, you may meet them three or four weeks later and, and, have, uh, and, and touch on the conversation again and, and see if they've evolved because people evolve over time. And maybe now they're a little bit more open. Uh, maybe they've heard more. Maybe somebody they know became sick and they're a little more frightened. So you can, you can do that. The other thing that I'll say, which I think here may be quite interesting, is I've often found that the religious leaders of communities are often quite practical um, and are often not, in fact, uh, the ones who are pushing the envelope. And so I've actually found that they're often the ones who are very pragmatic. So I'll often say to them, well, have you talked to your rabbi about this? Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and they'll be like, no, I haven't. I'm like, well, why don't you talk to your rabbi about that? Because I've often learned that they go talk to the rabbi. The rabbi is going to be like, you idiot, put on a mask. You know, don't go, uh, don't stay six away from people. What are you doing? You're in, that's insane. So I've actually often found that the religious leaders of these, of these organizations are actually quite pragmatic. They don't want to lose their congregation. They don't want people to get sick. And so, um, so often I find, you know, that directing them, uh, to to their to their religious leader is sometimes often quite effective. I love it. So if we spoke about about boundaries here, we speak about the translation, and I think translation is like um, uh, cultural translation is so so important. Mostly, um, if um, if the doctors look differently and belong to different community, I think the important to know how to speak. To know more than one language, maybe it's one of the keys to 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 doctors. Um, another boundary that you speak in the book is a boundary of us making decisions. So, as modern people, we believe that um, that we make the decisions about our life. And one of the challenges that you bring in the book, in page seventy-seven, is the question of how much, when we make decisions, we actually make the decision. Um, or how much the decision is actually was made by us in our bodies, which is fascinating for um, um, around 10 seconds before. And the question is of consciousness decisions. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the importance of this idea 
and and um, how it's influenced the way how we should work and in, in medicine? Yeah, you know, I think that it's helpful to start with the most basic uh, understanding of where we come from. Uh, we're a product of our genes and we're a product of our environment. Uh, our genes start to uh, inter, inter, interact with our environment as soon, at the moment of conception in the womb. And, uh, and, and then for the rest of our lives, uh, there's this uh, continuous feedback loop where the environment um, is uh, interacting with our genes, which in turn uh, influences how our genes um, uh, activate various proteins and, and uh, everything that makes us who we are. Uh, and so if you start with that really basic premise, which I think is hard to push back on, it's pretty fundamental. I mean, I think we can agree that uh, we live in a world now where there's a shared understanding that we're a product of our genes and our environment. Um, it's also important to recognize that we didn't choose either of those. We don't get to choose either of those. Uh, we don't get to choose our genes, um, and we certainly don't get to choose our environment. Um, we're, we're born into um, an environment, um, which is the, our mother's womb. And then once we are delivered, we're born into the environment in which our mother um, uh, lives. And, uh, and, uh, and we didn't get to choose any of that. So I think it's important to recognize that um, everything that happens follows from that very complex interaction. Uh, and, um, and I know this sounds like a somewhat mechanistic view, um, but, uh, it, but I, I'm, I, I, I start with that premise. Uh, and so um, who we become and who we are at any point in time is an expression of, uh, of, 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 of that interaction in the present moment. Uh, and so, um, if I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to have, um, a pizza or, um, or if I'm going to just skip pizza and go right on to dessert, um, for lunch and just have a, a brownie or a milkshake, um, I may be contemplating those two and trying to think, well, one's more healthy, one's more delicious, blah, blah, blah. And eventually, uh, when I arrive, um, at the, uh, at, at the place where I like to eat, I'm going to take out my wallet and they're going to ask me what I want and I'm going to place an order. And I may not know exactly what I'm going to order until I step up there as I'm deliberating between these healthy versus delicious decisions. Okay. Um, now, um, we really, really feel like we are making a choice at that moment. It really does. I mean, we're, 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 we're agonizing over it, but if you think about it, um, what's happening is a, is, is, a, is basically a bunch of neurons firing in our brain. Um, and those neurons are interacting with the nice smells that we experience as we walk towards that, uh, towards that, um, a takeout place. Um, uh, we may smell the pizza. Um, but then again, we may look at the, uh, at the delicious, uh, milkshakes that other people are eating, uh, as they come out of the restaurant and so forth. And all of that interaction between our environments and our genes are playing in the moment. Bam, 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 bam. Now, um, at that moment, um, a decision is going to be made. And, um, and I think that is um, absolutely how life works. In fact, I challenge anyone to come up with an alternate, alternative model for how life works. Um, and if that's how life works, we can apply that to every situation. We can apply that to the person who grows up in extreme poverty, who's abused by their family, um, who doesn't have an opportunity to have an education, who discovers that the best way to make a living is to sell drugs on the street. Okay. Um, is that a choice? Well, at the moment, yes, it feels like a choice. You know, they, someone says, well, why couldn't they have gone off to college? Well, they could have, but it would have been a very different set of 
um, of uh, it would have been a very different set of decisions and trade-offs than somebody who grew up in a, a family where there was money and good education and they decided to go to college rather than become a drug dealer. They're very different situations. So I think that if you if you if you if you kind of build up from those very basic concepts, you start to understand that everyone is simply doing the best they can with what they have. Um, yes. And that is the foundation of what I call non-judgmentalism. And if you're going to be a physician, um, you have to be a non-judgmental person. You have to understand that everybody is simply a product of their genes and their environment. And that is the basic starting point for asking questions. When people behave in ways that seem puzzling to you, rather than judging them, what you say to yourself is, hmm, they have their reasons. I may not know what those reasons are because I didn't grow up in the way they did, but they have their reasons. Those genes in that environment are interacting and that's leading them to make decisions in the moment. They may seem like bad decisions to me. They may in fact be to self-destructive decisions, but those are the decisions that their brain um, are making given the environment in which it has been immersed. And my job as a physician is to ask questions so that I can begin to understand what makes this person tick so that I can perhaps be helpful. I love it. It's um, in, in a way you emphasize the need for um, a dialogue in the boober way of thinking about that, right? That because by the dialogue, what we're doing now here is by the questions and looking at each other and and being able not to challenge in a, the way that contradicts, but in a way that it's an invitation. I think that you, in a way, give these people who maybe are used to live in a specific way that create for them to, to continue to be faced by the medical challenge, the possibility to, to change themselves. However, what I feel that you bring in the book is also the wish that the doctor will be also open to be changed. And I think that the possibility of a doctor to be changed needs can happen with a condition that the doctor, when he is in his or her room, they look at themselves as soul, as Yakir, and not as a title that come to solve a specific, very, very narrow specific medical problem. And this brings me to the beginning of your book, because at the beginning of your book, you speak about the way how you studied medicine. And I want to go back to that, because in a way, your attitude toward medicine is with contradiction to the way how you were trained to be a doctor. And I wonder if you can help us to understand that better. And I want maybe to go even more specifically. I wonder about since medical studies are in a very specific way, I wonder about the people who do not even apply to medical studies or people who apply to medical studies but do not succeed to finish them or they finish them but something broke inside themselves, like the system succeeded to make them to be the doctors in the way that the system wants, 
but they lost this ability to be open to be changed. So I wonder if you can help us to understand more. And one more element in my question is, you speak a lot in your book about your mentor. Now, this mentor didn't come by the school, to the opposite. It's like you had a crisis with your studies and you found a mentor, um, which is a very beautifully, because in old traditions and maybe also in history, this is a way how people study medicine. And also any serious studies we studied in a way by mentoring. So I wonder if you can help us to understand more. Sure. I think that uh, an important part of my life story is that I have a fairly significant learning disability. And so that's unusual in the sense that most people who go to medical school have been great students and they have always gotten um, sort of uh, ego reinforcement from their success as students. You know, they got, they were the ones who got the A's. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, while I think that that has advantages, it also has disadvantages because if you're constantly getting kudos, if you're constantly getting, um, ego reinforcement for essentially doing the, for, for, for conforming, then there's less incentive to challenge or question what it is that, uh, you're being asked to do. And medicine uh, medical training, at least in the United States, uh, is this all-consuming process where, th- in many ways, um, every moment of your day is taken over by this massive amount of material that you're expected to memorize and regurgitate uh, and um, all these multiple-choice tests. And even in college, you have to take these re- these very difficult courses like organic chemistry, where you have to learn massive amounts of information and all of these chemical equations, which you will forget and never use uh, for the most part. Um, and it, it, it's, it occurred to me when I was reflecting all the, on this many years later that in many ways, it's a form of social control, um, that it's in many ways a way in which uh, you are uh, now, every moment of your day is now under the control of a system. Uh, and that system is all encompassing. And, and, and what the system tells you is that if you don't play ball, uh, you will be kicked out. Literally, you will fail. You won't be advanced. And so you're, you're kind of pulled into this trap where you have to kind of just keep running and running and running and running, and it takes over your life. Um, and, and the stakes get higher and higher, particularly as you start paying more and more intuition and you start thinking that, um, oh, I'm going to earn so much money if I make it through this and I'm going to get status. And, um, and you're surrounded by people who have been successful and it becomes this all-encompassing identity. Um, and yet for what? Um, so that you can memorize massive amounts of material that you will promptly forget and probably never use. And at a cost to developing um, a, a lot of emotional um, qualities um, at developing an understanding of how to uh, connect with people who are suffering, how to uh, feel comfortable around otherness. If you think about it, most people who are sick are pretty old, and most people who are going through medical training are pretty young. And so, how do you how do you bridge that? Um, and and I think that what all of these to me seem like fundamental uh, fundamental um, issues and questions to address if you're training physicians, and yet 
they're subsumed. They're subsumed by memorizing, you know, the 16 different types of collagen and, and you know, the Krebs cycle and all of this stuff that, uh, that uh, you, you ultimately don't remember. And so, uh, and so it raises uh, really profound questions about, about why we have this whole system uh, that is about social control um, that comes at the cost of training people who are actually going to be healers. Uh, and, uh, and so there is, I think, this tremendous disconnect between what we're doing and what is ultimately needed. I think that because I was learning disabled, it was a little easier for me to see what was going on simply because I couldn't succeed by playing by the rules. Um, and one of the things I talked about is that I discovered my first year of medical school that if I actually went to class, I was dead meat. I was never going to succeed because I would sit there for eight hours, completely confused. I couldn't understand anything that was being discussed. And so I had to stop going to class and learn stuff on my own, um, which uh, meant hours and hours of solitude. Uh, and, um, and, and that was, um, uh, that was the beginning of sort of becoming an autodidact of having to learn to question everything and figure out how to learn it on my own. And then, of course, this mentor came into my life who turned out to be so important. He was a family physician 30 years ahead of me, somebody I'd actually known my whole life, but didn't take on this critical role until I was going through it myself. Um, and, uh, and, he, and, and Simon, I refer to him as Simon, was really somebody who was focused entirely on, on being there for people who were suffering on being present. And, and that served as a, a, a constant reminder to me of what, it, what this is all about. But I certainly wouldn't have gotten that from the medical training that I was going through. Thank you so much. So do we see a change? Do you see when you look in the past uh, 10 years um, um, in your life, in your, in your professional life, do we see more in, in the system of, of medicine, do, do we see more engagement between fields? Do we have more doctors who are encouraged to, to have dialogue in, um, during work or, or in seminars with, with healers? Uh, because to be a healer is a whole world for itself. And I wonder if um, we see more engagement among fields in order to enrich each other? I don't really think there is much progress. Uh, there, there is a lot of what I would call, um, this isn't a nice word, but lip service. So I would say that everybody takes a, a course in their first year and usually second year of medical school on, the doc, on doctor-patient communication, on the doctor-patient relationship. But I find it to be, again, somewhat didactic and scripted. And I talk about this uh, from my own experience, where we were sort of taught, you know, how do you build rapport? How do you have bedside manner? Um, and but it, it seemed like it was sort of more of the same. It was rules, you know, um, that were much more about um, learning to appear like you um, are engaging, rather than um, actually learning how to be yourself in relationships with people uh, who are suffering, um, and learning to do that with boundary clarity. I think that requires a kind of uh, personal growth. Uh, that uh, that you don't get from uh, from taking yet another multiple choice test or, test or 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 being taught a series of of, um, of behaviors. Now I think that that those classes are better than nothing. Um, I think that they're they're better than nothing. It's better to uh, learn how to uh, be polite and and learn how to be respectful uh, than not to. But again, I think it's a far cry from uh, from a sense of shared humanity uh, which is fundamentally 
what, uh, what, what I think is needed. So the journey to becoming a healer is long. And, and uh, I, I deeply believe that your book is going to bring a lot of life into that. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for your interest. Thank you.